Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, welcome back to the Servants of Grace theology segment. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, a listener writes in, and they have a great question. What do I say to a brother who says Paul is a false apostle? This, uh, There's a lot to say about this question. Let me say that. And I'll start by saying some of you will think that I, I didn't provide enough of an answer, but I want to I wanna say at the outset that there I try to keep these to about 10 to 15 minutes, and so we're going to be pushing the 15 minutes for this one because, well, there's a lot to say. You know, there is a theory out there that the question implies from our listener, what do I say to a brother who says Paul is a false apostle? There is a theory out there, and I say it that way, that Paul was a false prophet and a false teacher and not a follower of Christ. That theory is put forward by the Hebrew Roots movement, among others. They, those who hold that view, they claim that Christians should submit to the Old Testament law, and yet we have to ask the person that they're accusing whether he agrees with them. And what we're going to see is what you see when you look at Romans 10.4, Galatians 3.23-25, Ephesians 2.15, that Paul says Christians are no longer under the law, under the Mosaic law, but he says in Galatians 6.2 that Christians are under the law of Christ, which uh, Jesus says it's to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through thirty-nine. And so, rather submitting, rather than submitting to the Word of God, the Hebrews Roots movement simply dismisses Paul altogether and the claims that Paul was a false apostle and that his writings should not be in the Bible. And yet, when we look at the whole New Testament where Paul's apostolic authority is clearly given and spoken of in the Bible. It's clear. Beginning with, in Acts 9, his dramatic Damascus Road experience, which changed him from a Christ-hating persecutor of Christians to being a foremost spokesman for the Christian faith. And his astonishing change of heart is one of the clearest indications that the Lord Jesus Christ was at work in his life. And when the Apostle Paul first came to Jerusalem after his conversion to Christianity, he tried to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. They didn't believe he was a true convert in Acts 9.26 because of his past persecution of Christians. In fact, today, as we're talking about, many Christians today think the same of Paul. Occasionally, a charge is made that Paul was a Pharisee who tried to corrupt the teaching of Christ and that his writings should have no place in the Bible. This accusation can be put to rest by examining his conversion experience and his adherence to Christ and the teachings therein. Paul first appears in Scripture as a witness to the martyrdom of Stephen in 
Acts 7.58, which says, When they had driven him, Stephen, out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witness lay uh, aside their robes to the feet of a young man named Saul. Acts 8.1 says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And the words hearty agreement indicate active approval, not just passive consent. Why would Paul agree with the murder of Stephen? Well, Paul the Pharisee would have immediately recognized the statement Stephen made right before in Acts 7.56. Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen's words repeat the claim Christ made at his trial before the high priest in Mark 14.62. And just as Jesus claim resulted in him being accused of blasphemy so also these words would bring a murderous response from saul the the pharisee towards stephan and in addition the term son of man is filled with significance it is the last time the term is used in the new testament and it is only used once in the gospels and acts when it is not spoken by jesus And it shows that Jesus is the Messiah. It speaks of Christ's position in the end times as the coming king. And it also combines two great messianic passages, Daniel 7, 13 through 14 and Psalm 110, verse 1. In fact, Daniel 7, 13 through 14, it emphasizes the universal aspect of the rule of Jesus, that he is not simply a Jewish ruler. He's the savior of the world. Psalm 110, 1 presents the Messiah as being at God's right hand. Besides stressing power and position, it shows also acceptance. And all these things would have infuriated Saul the Pharisee, who at the time did not possess the true knowledge of Christ. But it would not be long before Saul the Pharisee would become Paul the evangelist for Christ. In fact, what we see in Acts 9, 1-9, Acts 22, 6-11, Acts 9, uh, uh, excuse me, Acts 26, 9 through 20. There are repeated elements which are central to uh, Paul's commissioning and to Paul's mission. It marked his conversion to Christianity. It served as his commission as an apostle of Jesus. In fact, these things can be broken down into about six points. Paul was specifically chosen, meaning he was set aside. He was prepared for the, prepared by the Lord for the work that he would do. Paul was then sent as a witness, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. Paul's evangelistic mission would encounter rejection and require suffering. Paul would bring light to people who were born into and currently living in darkness. Paul would preach repentance was required prior to a person's acceptance into the Christian faith. Six. Paul's witness would be grounded in space-time history and be based on his Damascus Road experience. What he had personally seen and heard in a real location that would be known to all who lived in Damascus. And before Gamil's pupil came to a proper assessment of the ministry entrusted to him by the Lord and through the death and resurrection of Christ, a revolution had to take place in his life and thought. Paul would later say he was apprehended by Jesus in Philippians 3.12 on the road to Damascus, a term that means to make uh, something one's own or gain control of something through a pursuit. 
In Acts 9, we see in Paul's conversion the point of which were to make clear that God is in control and he's directing all the events so that Paul will undertake certain tasks that the Lord has in mind, something that the former Saul would have never have even cared about. And although there are many observations that can be made about Paul's Damascus Road at conversion, there are two items that are of importance. First is the fact that Paul's life would become centered on Christ after his experience. And after his encounter with Jesus, Paul's understanding of the Messiah had been revolutionized. And it was not long before he was proclaiming in Acts 9.20, he, Jesus, is the Son of God. And now we also note in Paul's conversion, there, there's no positive antecedents or precursory events that led him from being a zealous opponent to a fervent proponent of Christ. One minute, Paul had been an enemy of Jesus. The next, he was captive. He was a slave for Christ, that, to the Christ that he had been once persecuting. 1 Corinthians 15.10 says, By the grace of God, I am what I am, indicating that he was transformed by the grace of God. He became uh, united to Christ by faith, and he was one whom Christ possessed, was, was possessed by Christ. He was owned by Christ, and he was now proclaiming Christ, the glory of Christ. And after Damascus Road experience, Paul went up to Arabia first. But whether he had actually began his missionary work there is unknown. We're not told. And what is even more likely is that he earnestly desired a time of reflection on the word. And then after a short stay in Jerusalem, he worked as a missionary in Syria and Sicilia, that is, for the most part, in Antioch, on the Orients, and in his native city of Tarsus. After that, in the company with Barnabas in Cyprus and Pamphylia, Pisidia, and Laconia. Now, Paul, the former cold aggressor and legalist, had now become a person who could write of the key attribute that witnessed above everything else in 1 Corinthians 13, love for God and those around him. The one who is supremely educated in knowledge had come to the point of saying that knowledge devoid of love only makes one arrogant, but love edifies in 1 Corinthians 8.1. The book of Acts and Paul's letters testify to a tenderness that comes over the apostle, both for the unbelieving world and those inside the church. And as to the latter, in his uh, farewell address to the Ephesian believers in Acts 20, he tells them in Acts 20.31, Night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to teach each one with tears. He tells the Galatian believers that they are his little children in Galatians 4.19. He reminds the Corinthians that whatever they experience pain, he is wounded as well in 2 Corinthians 11.29. He speaks of believers in Philippi as having them in his heart in Philippians 1.7. He tells the Thessalonian church that he abounds in love for them in 1 Thessalonians 3.12 and demonstrates that fact by living among them and helping them build up a Christian community as he tells them in 1 Thessalonians 1-2. through And so again and again in Paul's writing, he reminds his believers, believing readers, I should say, of his care and his love for them. And even Paul's attitude towards unbelievers is one of caring and of deep concern, with perhaps the clearest example being of his, being of his teaching and articulation in the letter to the Romans of the sorrow he felt for his fellow Israelites who had not yet come to faith in Romans 9, 1 through 3, 
which says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I, I could wish that I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brother, my kinsman, according to the flesh. And this type of angst by Paul for unbelievers was not restricted by his own nationality. It extended Jews as well. In Acts 17, 16, he makes clear that, that Paul was both repulsed and greatly distressed over the situation of idol worship in the city. And yet he deeply cared for God's rightful place, as well as the people who were involved in false worship. And he immediately went about trying to engage the pagan unbelievers in discourse about the gospel in which he had believed, in which he was telling them about in Acts 17, 17 through 34. And at the heart of the message that Paul was giving was Jesus Christ and him crucified. In fact, that brings us to Paul's thoughts on Jesus. Some try to picture, uh, paint the picture that Paul paints of Jesus in his epistles does not match the Christ portrayed in the Gospels. And yet we can say, without even, without even mincing words, that this is not the truth. In fact, two of the Gospels, Mark and Luke, were written by men who were close associates of Paul, if not actual students of his as 2 Timothy 4.11 says. And so it's hard to imagine that those books would contain theology different from Paul's. And also from Paul's letters, we learn of Jesus. He had a Jewish ancestry. He was of Davidic descent. He was born of a virgin. He lived under the law. He had brothers. He had 12 disciples. He had a brother named James. He lived in poverty. He was humble and meek. He was abused by the Romans. He was deity. He taught on the subject of marriage. He said to love one's neighbors. He spoke of his second coming. He instituted the Lord's Supper. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross. The Jews put him to death. He was buried. He was resurrected. He is now seated at the right hand of God. And beyond these facts is Paul's witness that he left everything to follow Christ. The test of a real follower of Christ as outlined in Luke 14, 26 through 33. And Paul writes this in Philippians 3, 7 through 11. But whatever things his Jewish background and benefits that he had just listed were gained to me, those things I counted as loss, literally dung for the loss of the sake of Christ. And more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death in order that I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. And there's so much more that we can say about the way in which Paul's enemies viewed him and and even more than that. And yet we're running out of time and we need to wrap up this specific episode And so we need to ask the question as we land the plane here, was Paul for real? Well, the evidence from history, from his writings, is that he was. Paul's change of life from his pharisaical lifestyle is not disputed by any learned scholar of history, whether that's a non-Christian or a Christian. The only question is, what caused his about face? What 
cause, what would cause, I should say, a learned Jewish Pharisee to suddenly embrace the very movement he violently opposed and to be so committed to it that he would die a martyr's death? The answer is contained within Paul's writings and the book of Acts. In Galatians, Paul summarizes this story in Galatians 1, 13-24, if you want to read it. Now, Paul's very life testifies to the truthfulness of what happens. And so we go back to the question, what do I say to a brother who says that Paul is a false apostle? Well, we go to the word of God. With these questions, we go to what scripture says. Paul's words are very clear. And so uh, so is the words of the other apostles. Even in, in, at the very end of Second Peter, we see Peter even commenting on Paul uh, uh, his relationship with Paul, and about Paul's teaching. And so here is the leader of the apostles commenting on Paul. You can look at Acts 15, where they were received by the apostles. And so this is what we say in argumentation. This is a false charge. It's a charge that doesn't stick. It's an argument that doesn't work. It's an argument we can say from silence. That is, there's nothing to it. It's not persuasive. It doesn't, the charge doesn't stick. The evidence against it is overwhelming. And so it's a false charge. It's a not a biblically persuasive statement. It's not a theologically solid statement. It's therefore it is, we can do what the Bible tells us to be Bereans and we can simply reject though that, that statement and, and the view biblically, theologically and practically. The suggestion, and I say it that way, the opinion, because it's not a biblical fact, it's not rooted in Scripture, that Paul is a false apostle. Instead, we believe what Paul said. Paul said that all of Scripture in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 is inspired by God. It's given for our good. It's given for our instruction. And so we can take Paul at his word because he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit where God used his unique time, talent, education, and abilities, and he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we can trust, as not only the apostles did, the teaching of Paul, but also we can trust the, the, the fact that Paul's words are reliable, they are trustworthy, uh, they're given for our good, they're without error and without the possibility of error, they're clear and they're binding on our lives. And so, Paul was an apostle of Jesus. He taught in accord with uh, not only what the Old Testament taught, he also taught uh, what in accords with Jesus. And the church has recognized as well further his writings as scripture. And so we can take that to the bank. Well, I want to thank you for listening or watching this episode of the Servants of Grace Theology segment. I did say at the outset this one would be a little bit longer, so thank you for uh, tuning in to this week's episode of the Servants of Grace Theology segment. Until next week, may the Lord richly bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. 
You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org. 